We've been calling it a news cycle in search of a narrative. I think we finally found it. This Evergrande situation, Jeffrey Christian was calling for volatility in September, and I thought to myself, I think I even mentioned it last week, it seems to be getting a little late in the day. September is almost over, and, you know, last week it didn't seem too volatile, but it has showed up. And Jeffrey was correct on that one. So here we are. I have to say, I find it a little mysterious what's going on. I mean, there are a few things going on. From an investor perspective, there is definitely not a sense of panic, in in my opinion. I think everybody is just as hyped up on whatever their investments of choice are whether it's the stock market, crypto, you name it. I think everybody's just as hyped up and they're just thinking this is the calm before the next leg higher or the necessary correction. I do not see people panicking. What I find strange about this Evergrande situation is it's been in the news for four or five months. And what I don't understand – and. And again, this is all hearsay from I'm just sort of consuming the news like everybody else is. My understanding, it's $300 billion, uh, you know, just from things I've heard. Lehman was supposed to be $600 billion, and I have a couple of thoughts on that. First, $600 billion, first of all, it's half of what Lehman was, but Lehman was in 2008, 2009. And now we are in the era of trillion-dollar budgets. So back then, a $700 billion bailout, which is what I think it was in 2008, that was a really huge bailout. Today, you know, like, sure, it would be big, but we're in the realm of $1 to $2 trillion budgets, maybe more. The Federal Reserve is, you know, buying $120 billion of bonds a month, from my understanding. So you know, when you think of it, you know, relatively, again, if if I'm correct and the Fed is buying $120 billion a month of bonds, in a sense, what's $300 billion? At the end of the day, it's more than a drop in the bucket, but it's not, you know, the same sort of catastrophic situation on a relative basis. So there's that. I do find it mysterious, though, why the Chinese government is taking so long to bail it out. I mean, this is one of the reasons for the complacence is this sense that, well, the Chinese government will never let Evergrande take down the Chinese and global economy. But what are they waiting for? My understanding is the bond payments are this week. And so, again, just being a news detective, nothing more. I don't have any real data in front of me. The bond payments are this week. And to my understanding, that's when the contagion would occur, because if they can't pay their creditors, then those creditors who are expecting that money may not be able to pay their creditors, and all of a sudden it gets out of control. So if you're going to contain it, they've had four or five months to contain it. So then you start to wonder, well, what other alternative scenarios are there? I have seen this idea, and this is pure speculation, but it's an interesting thought, so I share it here. You know, maybe China wants to nationalize Evergrande, and it's better for them 
if it goes to 10 cents on the dollar or 5 cents, and then they can just take it over for pennies on the dollar. So that's one interesting narrative. And I thought of another one, and I don't know how accurate or, or how crazy this might sound, but if I have a lot of money and, you know, they say the Chinese government is sitting on $3 trillion, don't I want the stock market to go down so I can buy everything from just a pure, you know, you might say very self-interested perspective? Don't I want everything to fall so I can just buy it all up? That's how I am as an individual investor. If I have a whole bunch of money on the sidelines, I want to buy it all up. So who knows? But the drama has arrived. The stage has been set and things are in motion. So let's see what happens. Coming up tomorrow, we have the Global Mining Symposium. You can still register. It's events.northernminer.com. We have a fantastic show coming up for you today. We have Dr. Sarah Gordon from Satarla, and she talks about all the latest trends in risk management. And she also discusses her new course on edge mine, what is mining. And we also have CEO Mark Jarvis, who gives a very interesting interview. And again, these are sponsored, the CEO Spotlight, but do listen. It's fascinating what Mark Jarvis has to say about low-grade nickel deposits and the competition with China and just the difference in mentality between, say, the West and the Chinese when it comes to building these mines. And it's something we've been discussing over and over again, you know, as I was with Anthony Malowski. So lots to tackle here today. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram at The Northern Miner and on YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to our CEO Spotlight with CEO Mark Jarvis. So joining me today, I'm very pleased to welcome Mark Jarvis, CEO of Giga Metals Corporation, to our CEO Spotlight segment. And they run the Turnagain Large Low-Grade Nickel Sulfide Deposit in North Central British Columbia. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. And uh, yeah, low-grade nickel deposits are one of my areas of interest, you might be surprised to hear. Uh, so tell, tell us what you're working on, uh, what are you up to, and what you guys are doing at Gigametals. Well, we're uh, currently on the property uh, doing resource drilling, and we're trying to gather the information we need to advance the engineering from a PEA which we released earlier this year to the pre-feasibility level and sort of sandpaper the economics and you know figure out you know the optimal processing route and how we can wring the most economics out of this deposit. So, um, but it takes a lot of data to back up uh, you know the more detailed level of engineering. So that's what we're doing. And just in general, you know we're trying to uh, position our our deposit for development which is a challenge. These large, low-grade sulfide nickel deposits, open pitable deposits, there's a few of them in the world. And generally, the economics are poor at the lower end of the nickel price range. And so really, the known deposits, there's probably between the sulfide deposits and the laterate deposits that are suitable for battery metal, there may be 15 or 20 of them in the world that you know, have, have the size that we have that, you know, 
you know, you know, I'm talking about deposits in the range of 35,000 tons a year of nickel. Okay. And you know, you look at the electric vehicle revolution and you look at how much nickel is going to be needed for all those batteries. And you go, well, these projects are going to have to be developed. However, the nickel price has to move higher before any of these deposits will be uh, built into mines by Western companies. Chinese companies, SOEs, they're building uneconomic nickel deposits now. And they're building them in jurisdictions where you know you 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 know you don't have the kind of high environmental standards that we have in Canada, where you can get things done quickly, even though they're uneconomic in Western terms. Maybe they're building projects with uh, with an internal rate of return of one percent, two percent, three percent, which a Western company would never build. Their cost of capital is cheap, and they're thinking strategically in the sense that they want to dominate the electric vehicle market. And they want to dominate the battery market, and they already do. And it looks like they secured the supply chain where they will be able to dominate those markets for a long time to come. The Western uh, battery companies, in particular, uh, are just starting to wake up. It seems to me, you know, they're realizing that if they want a long-term supply of nickel at a price they can predict, at a steady price, they're going to have to own a piece of a mine. And that's where we're positioning ourselves. And we're having a lot of conversations right now with strategics. We're very interested in uh, getting an end user in, you know, either an electric vehicle manufacturer, you know, and believe it or not, they're talking to us. You know, you would think that, uh, you know, looking at the mining business is way outside of the comfort zone of a car manufacturer. And, uh, you know, that's what I think too. However, they're starting to realize that they've got a problem if they're going to compete with China. Uh, and the battery companies, of course, and of course, the trading companies and so forth, everybody can see what's coming. And so that's our problem is that we're a small company. And you've heard this story before. You've got a very small company with an extremely large deposit. And when I say large, uh, Turnigan uh, in the PEA, we modeled a building a nameplate capacity of uh, 37,000 tons per year of nickel uh, in a very you know, high-grade, clean concentrate with a 37-year mine life. I mean, that's, 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 that's really, really big. So, but developing it is expensive. You know, just all the drilling you have to do, uh, all the metallurgy you have to do, the geometallurgy, the engineering, every step of it costs money. And then ultimately, when you build this, we're talking about a project that we modeled a capex, an initial capex of 1.4 billion US, which will take care of a lot of our infrastructure issues. And then we model uh, doubling our production for, for another half a billion US. So a total of 1.9 billion US to reach nameplate capacity. You know, that's, that's a big spend for a tiny company. So really the problem is that we have to find strategic investors to invest at the project level. And uh, that's, that's, that's entirely our focus. That is so interesting because that is what I heard from the other low-grade nickel uh, companies I've spoken to. It seems right. to be all about trying to secure investment, whereas China could not care less if this thing is profitable or not. And it right. just wants to get the metal out of the ground because it understands the strategic importance of having that metal available. Is that, is that how you see things? 
Yes, it is. And, and, and you know, China, frankly, isn't comfortable in a jurisdiction like Canada, where you've got environmental assessment processes that last, you know, two, three, four years, you know, and, and it's quite a rigorous environmental assessment process. So, you know, they're interested in, in jurisdictions where you can get things done quickly, like, like Papua New Guinea, like, like Indonesia, you know, and their jurisdictions close to home where, you know, where they can project their naval power. So, you know, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a very interesting geopolitical question. And, you know, I I heard you talking to Anthony Molosky about, you know, that the solution is that governments uh, in the West have to step in if they're going to secure those supply chains. And and, you know, the fact is the politicians will talk and talk and talk about it, but they're not going to do anything. And I agree with his assessment of that. They're not going to do anything. So what is the answer? You know, how do you get these 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 large Western deposits developed? And I think it comes down to the supply chain again and the recognition by uh, you know battery companies, Western battery companies and Western EV companies that if they don't do something to secure a supply chain uh, and invest in projects where they can have a secure long-term supply at the cost of production. By owning a piece of a mine, if they don't do that, the Chinese are going to eat them alive. And is that and because they won't have the nickel that they need in order to build these EVs? They'll have to buy it from China, right? And maybe China doesn't even want to sell it to them for all they know. Yeah. And why yeah. would they? Why would yeah. they sell the nickel, right? Yeah, they would rather sell them batteries or cars, right? And they probably need the nickel themselves, right? So they want to sell the car, as Anthony Malowski pointed out. They don't want to sell you the nickel for the car. So very interesting. Now, uh, we're running short on time here, but tell me briefly, if you can. So what is your ideal scenario? Because you come from a point of expertise here as the, as the CEO of Gigametals, a nickel company. So what would you like to see happen to fast track all this? Is it quicker environmental reviews, uh, more investment? Does that mean government investment? More, I don't know, is it more like uh, where there's just encouragement somehow? where you make it easier for investors? Like briefly, if you can, like what oh, needs to happen? You know, I would love it if the government were to invest and I would love it if uh, we could have more uh, clarity on how long environmental assessments take and so forth. However, I don't expect any of that. Okay, so what I really am looking for is a strategic investor uh, that'll get involved with us at the project level and we'll uh, come in with an investment that'll help carry us to shovel-ready status. And that's going to be the transformative event uh, that will cause you know a huge re-rating uh, in our market capitalization and in our ability to raise other money as well. And to that end, uh, we've 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 built a team here uh, that has a lot of expertise in that area. So I'm the CEO, but our president is a fellow named Martin Vidra, who had a career at Sherrod International, a Canadian company that's a producer of nickel and cobalt. They've got a laterite, uh, you know, HPAL project in Cuba. So they produce and sell uh, nickel and cobalt to end users. And Martin, in his career there, he's an engineer, but he also spent a good part of his career selling nickel and cobalt products to end users. So he's very much uh, in tune with the market. He knows what these end users want. 
We've also got a fellow named uh, Bob Morris uh, on our board. He joined our board about a week after retiring from Vale. And at Vale, that's the big, uh, you know, Brazilian iron ore producer. It's also the largest single company producer of nickel in the world. And uh, Bob was in charge of worldwide sales for base metals for Vale, copper, nickel, cobalt, and precious metals, a portfolio between five and eight billion a year, depending on, you know, commodity prices. And, you know, what both of those guys see is a project here that can meet the needs of uh, EV makers and battery makers, and that can do it uh, in an ethically sourced way with simple, simple, simple processing. That's the strength of our deposit. It is so simple. It's very similar to a large copper porphyry deposit. You know, you dig the rock out, you crush it, you grind it, and you use froth flotation. These are all old tech solutions. Uh, they're simple, they're reliable. The only difference with us is we use different reagents to float the nickel rather than the reagents you would use to float copper. And because of that, we've got something that is very valuable, particularly, I'll say this to end users in Europe. They care more in Europe than any place else in the world about the provenance of the supply chain. So if you're trying to save the world by buying an electric vehicle, well, if you're buying your batteries from China, you're not saving the world. You are mowing down tropical rainforests. You're dumping tailings into the ocean. You know, it's hard to feel good about, you know, uh, you know about the environmental uh, aspects of, uh, you know, laterite nickel mined in uh, the Philippines. Um, and, and, and the carbon footprint of these deposits is extremely high. Our deposit, we have a real shot, we think, of getting to a carbon neutral mine by sequestering CO2 uh, in our tailings. And, 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 and that's a whole other topic for discussion. But the simple version is we can be carbon neutral. We've got empirical data to back that assertion. And we're doing ongoing studies. We're funding studies at the University of British Columbia to continue to study this. So, you know, at the end of the day, the strategics have to make a decision. Do they want a secure supply chain? Do they want a clean and ethical supply chain? And if they do, well, they need to talk to us. Well, it's like Robert Friedland says, in the future, there could be a price for copper that's ethically sourced, so to speak, or, you know, non-ethically sourced, or however you want to call that. Uh, right. metal. So it sounds like you're positioned beautifully and what a strong board you have. So that is all we have time for. Mark Jarvis, CEO of Giga Metals, thank you for joining us in our CEO Spotlight. Well, thanks, Adrian. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure having you. And if you want to find Giga Metals on the TSX Venture Exchange, it is symbol G-I-G-A or Giga. And they're also available on the QX Exchange in the United States using the symbol HNCKF. Turning to the website, I thought there was a really interesting story here, kind of minor, but not. A Barrick Option South Uchi project from Kenorland Minerals. And what I thought was so interesting about this was we had heard in Barrick's conference call that they wanted to shift the focus to Canada. And now we are seeing that they are doing this as the South Uchi project is in Ontario. And so 
you know, if you saw this story without the conference call, you would think it's just another story. But now you can see this as part of Barrick's active strategy to pursue projects in what I would think are politically safe jurisdictions, specifically Canada. So this is by Jackson Chen. Canorland Minerals announced that it has entered into a property option agreement with Barrick Gold with respect to the company's South Uchi project in Ontario. Under the option agreement, Barrick can earn an initial 70% interest in the project by spending a total of $6 million on mineral exploration within six years, of which $3 million are guaranteed expenditures within the first three years. The gold major must also deliver an NI43101 compliant technical report on the project that establishes a mineral resource of at least 1 million ounces. As part of its exploration expenditures, Barrick will reimburse Knorland for its sunk costs in relation to the South Uchi project, as well as costs incurred in exercising an underlying option that comprises part of the project. And finally, following the earning of a 70% interest, Barrick and Knorland will form a joint venture on the project through Knorland, though Knorland will have the option to forego a minority JV interest and immediately vest a net smelter return royalty interest. So... Just an interesting, you know, a micro story that shows a macro trend, which I think is likely taking place, which is this move towards safer political jurisdictions, at least at Barrick. Moving on, Australia approves Whitehaven's controversial coal mine expansion. It's by Cecilia Jamasmi. And it says here, Whitehaven Coal has been granted the green light to expand its Vickery project in New South Wales. Despite a global push to lower carbon emissions and a historic court ruling on authorities' obligation to children to consider environmental harm before approving coal projects. I did not hear about that. Federal Environment Minister Susan Lay's decision comes six weeks before world leaders meet for the United Nations COP26 climate conference in Glasgow, Scotland, where Australia is being pressed to announce tougher emission reduction targets. Prime Minister Scott Morrison's government has so far resisted international pressure to commit to net zero emissions by 2050, ruling out charging polluters by setting a price on carbon. Vickery's expansion approval, published on September 16th, is the second coal project Lay has given her blessing to in the past two weeks and comes amid reports of large financial institutions officially withdrawing funds for the sector. And finally, it also follows a study showing that emissions from coal mined in Australia, but exported and burned overseas, almost doubled the nation's domestic greenhouse gas footprint in 2020. So it's interesting to see ESG is just becoming like, you know, three years ago, it was the new thing. And now it's practically a standard. We have another story with Indonesia here, who is considering a new export tax on nickel. It's by Northern Miner's staff. In a move to enrich local processing, the Indonesian government may impose an export tax on products containing less than 70% nickel, Reuters reports, citing comments from the country's investment minister, Balil Lahadalia. And we have a quote from the minister. If producers want to export the products with less than 70% nickel content, it is possible that we apply an export tax. And then we have a quote from the article, most nickel products exported from Indonesia have nickel content of 30 to 40 percent and could be refined further domestically to at least 70 percent, Balil told a virtual media briefing. So we have seen this in Indonesia before. It says here, 
Having been the world's largest ore exporter, Indonesia banned nickel exports in 2014, reversed that ban in 2017, and brought forward the planned reinstatement of the ban from 2022 to 2020, Hamilton said in a research note. However, he continues, However, the volatile policy has seen significant Chinese investment in downstream processing operations in Indonesia and a rise in export revenues. Any refined nickel restriction would be a new development and more impactful on global market dynamics. Now, we didn't mention this in the intro, but what's very interesting about what's going on with commodity prices, which we're going to see right away here, is industrial metals are ticking higher as we have this kind of big deflationary wave that's kind of blowing through the markets right now. Gold, silver down, but industrial metals tick higher. So that's quite something. Continuing on here, we have more from Hamilton. Quite simply, the world needs Indonesia's nickel for stainless steel. And while a ban is impractical, further changes to downstream nickel processing seem inevitable. He continues with Indonesia representing almost 40% of mined nickel and an even larger proportion of nickel into stainless. The world simply can't do without this material in the short term. Thus, we would expect a pushback on any ban... However, an increased export tax to hurt the economics of exporting would seem the path of least resistance to promote more domestic stainless steel and cathode plants. See this? More domestic production. And this is exactly what Mark Jarvis and I were discussing in that segment at the top of the show, the CEO Spotlight. So we're starting to see some real themes emerge here. Continuing on. We have here a fan favorite, uranium. Rising spot uranium prices buoy explorers, developers, and producers. It's by Northern Miner staff. Raymond James has raised its target prices on Cameco, Denizen Mines, and NextGen Energy. As spot uranium prices have jumped by more than 30% in the last two weeks to $49.88 per pound. So the spot price has finally moved. So this is crucial. Quote, prices move in the spot market like this are not unexpected given the nature of the spot market and in our view have been supported by the recent creation of the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, an entity designed to provide investors with direct exposure to uranium, said Brian MacArthur, a mining analyst at Raymond James, in a research note, adding that Sprott also intends to list in the United States, quote, potentially resulting in an increase both in trading liquidity and in access to capital, end quote. Yeah, uranium Twitter is a real thing. Like, start looking for uranium. Like, if we post a uranium story, we get, like, a bunch of retweets, a whole bunch of favorites. Uranium Twitter is real. MacArthur has raised his 2021 forecast for uranium prices to $36.65 per pound from $34.93 per pound. Well, stop the presses on that one. And his 2022 forecast to $55 a pound from $48 per pound. He also hiked his long-term forecast to $60 per pound from his earlier estimate of $55. The analyst price targets for Cameco have moved from $29 per share to $34 per share. Denizen Mines from $2.10 to $2.40 per share. And Next Gen Energy from $7.50 per share to $8.50 per share. Interesting. Sprott launched its uranium trust on July 19th, so only a couple of months ago. And according to a Bloomberg article on September 16th, it now holds 26 million pounds of uranium, quote, equal to about 14% of the annual consumption from the world's nuclear reactors. 
End quote. According to the news agency, the trust has increased its stockpile by 45% over the last four weeks. Now, uranium being the strategic metal that it is, like, I would think that the regulators and the government at a certain point is going <laughs> to tap Sprott on the shoulder and say, listen, guys, you don't get to just take 14% of the annual consumption from the world's nuclear reactors off the table so that you can try and make some money off of it. But uh, let's see what happens. Like, I would think, you know, I get it. I get it. You think uranium's going to go up, but you can't do this. You can't just scoop up all the uranium for our nuclear reactors, hold it, and then decide you're going to charge us a bunch of more money because we have all of a sudden an artificial shortage in supply thanks to your investment demand. You know, Jeffrey Christian mentions this, like so much of the metal prices are driven by investor demand. And he's a man who has been on this scene for a very long time. So let's see what plays out here in the uranium markets. And finally, we have a report from Adamus, global passenger EV registrations more than double in a year. It's by Henry Lazenby. And it says here, new registrations of global passenger electric vehicles surged by 109% year on year during the first six months of 2021, according to Adamus Intelligence. In its report entitled State of Charge, EVs, Batteries and Battery Materials, Adamus analysts found 4.16 million units were registered versus 1.99 million units in the first half of 2020. The increase was driven by surging sales growth in Americas, 135% year-on-year, Europe, 124% year-on-year, and Asia-Pacific, 94% year-over-year, as the market moves past 2020's pandemic-induced malaise. And it says a bit lower down, during the first half of this year, Tesla continued to lead the pack by battery capacity deployed onto roads globally, deploying more watt-hours into newly sold EVs than its six closest competitors combined. Another thing that Adamus found was that the volume of cobalt deployed in batteries rose 115% year-on-year to 12,600 tons in all newly sold passenger EVs combined. You always got to be careful with these year-on-year comparisons. One thing is they can be on a fairly small beginning state. So if you get 100% you know, of a small amount, well, it still kind of leads to a small amount. So we have to be careful with these numbers a little bit. Nevertheless, we do see a trend, and that trend is towards more electric vehicles. That is undeniable. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on September 21st, we got the 10-year trading at 1.336. That is down 0.007, so just a tiny bit lower in bond yields. And gold is trading at $1,759.92 per ounce. That is $18 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $22.33 per ounce. That is $1.34 lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $923.46 per ounce. That is $32 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,908.60 per ounce. 
That is $145 lower than last week. So the wind has really come out of the sails of palladium. I mean, a month ago is at $24.94 and it hasn't been below $2,000 on our weekly reading, geez, since about a couple of years ago, a year and a half at the minimum. So very interesting developments in palladium. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.28 per pound as four cents lower. Aluminum is trading at $1.32 per pound. That is a penny higher. And again, let's not forget the environment we're in right now. Lead is trading at a dollar, which is seven cents lower than last week. Nickel is trading at $9.10 per pound. That is 14 cents lower than last week. Tin is trading at $16.05 per pound. That is 29 cents higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $23.19 per pound. And zinc trades a penny higher at $1.41 per pound. What do we see? Precious metals get caught up in the downward sentiment, but the metals are basically holding firm, which is quite something. It's quite something indeed. It shows that the fundamentals of the metal market are very strong, particularly the industrial metals. I mean, nickel remains above $9 per pound. You know, aluminum, basically all-time highs from the last two years while we've been recording these prices. Tin, near its all-time highs of the prices we've been recording at 1605. And zinc, at its all-time highs. So... A very interesting divergence with our industrial metals here. Uh, very interesting developments. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Dr. Sarah Gordon, co-founder and CEO of Satarla. She has worked in a number of fields, including risk and assurance, safety, sustainability, R&D, business divestment, mine and exploration geology, and she's worked all over the world, including North and South America, Australasia, Africa, and Europe. You will learn more about Satarla, as well as her new course with Edgemine, What is Mining, which is available on the edgemine.com website. Just go to the homepage and look at the bottom left, and you will see that course. So I hope you enjoy my interview with Dr. Sarah Gordon, and I will see you on the other side. to welcome Dr. Sarah Gordon, who is CEO and co-founder of Satarla. And Sarah has just done a course for Edumine called What is Mining? We're going to get into all of that. Sarah, welcome to the program. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Adrian, for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. And uh, it's interesting, you're just over in London there. Uh, not too far, about one time zone away from me here in Berlin. So it's great to have a fellow, uh, I guess you'd say European. But uh, anyways, tell us, what, what are you up to in this business? <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Adrian. So I'm originally a geologist. Um, so I started out life as an exploration geologist, um, having a lovely time flying around in helicopters in northern Canada looking for nickel for Anglo-American. And quite quickly, um, I was really lucky, actually. I, I managed to go and see some rocks in some very exciting parts of the world, um, including going and working on site in Brazil, 
during which time I also began to get involved in a lot of the um, the broader technical aspects of the business, as well as sustainability. So during that time, I looked after all of the sustainability reporting for one of the business units. And it was around that time that I thought, hang on a second, there's all of these fantastic different aspects of mining, but how many of them actually hit senior level decision making? So where do we see all of that being rolled up in the organization? And that's where I came across risk management which for some maybe sounds really boring, but actually if it's working properly, it's all about decision-making and taking advantage of those opportunities that might be in front of us. And so that's led me to what I now do. So for the last seven and a half years or so, have been running Satala, which is a risk management and sustainability business, working um, primarily within the mining sector, but we've got clients all over the world doing different things. Um, and helping them to get risk management um, to be that decision-making tool and also make sure that sustainability is truly incorporated into that decision-making at every level of the organization. So to come back to your original question, I'm originally a rock person, um, but I've had the true delights of working all across the mining sector. Well, how interesting. And I was just thinking, you know, like speaking of risk management, like for you to strike out on your own there, from, I think you said you're at Anglo-American. How big of a risk was that for you? I mean, I guess that's the start of a bit of an entrepreneurial journey, I guess, hey? <laughs> yeah, well, I guess, um, I guess, I mean, all geologists, especially exploration geologists, perhaps are a little bit entrepreneurial at heart. At least we're all fairly optimistic. We all think we've certainly found um, the next great mine, at least we certainly hope we do. And I think it was a case that within the risk management space and also within Anglo-American, at, at the, certainly at that time, I was really fortunate to see how do you bring disparate factors together when you're trying to balance um, different threats and opportunities that are perhaps in tension. How do you end up making a decision with regards to those? And so that was a case where I could see how do you get risk management to work? And so together with my two co-founders, Laura and Tanki, so back in 2014, we took the plunge, we set up our business, um, and we were very lucky in that we managed to land some clients quite quickly um, and very much learn from them and so create the business that we, we have today. Fascinating. Yeah, I think that's great. And yeah, you, sometimes you just got to jump off the cliff and then hope that someone catches you. And, <laughs> uh, so anyways, okay, so you're focused on risk management. So from a big picture perspective, is it possible to identify, you know, like, I guess, there's probably more than one risk that mining companies face, but what are the big risks that, you know, miners Basis. I, I guess it depends on the region, but is there anything that kind of keeps coming up in your meetings? Yeah, no, there's, I mean, it's a really good question. And, and of course, it totally depends on the context in which you're mining, or also if you're a junior mining company that's sort of early stage exploration, your risks are going to be quite different to, compared to if you're a major mining company with, with large iron ore mines all over the world or something like that. Um, but I think one of the most exciting areas of risk, and by risk, I mean both the threat and the opportunity side, is actually that of sustainability at the moment. And we're working with a whole host of different organizations to help them with everything from 
their, their TCFD or their carbon disclosures at the moment um, through to understanding what is their social materiality. So looking at social performance and license to operate um, and then into that broader, almost resilience piece and saying, OK, well, how can you be truly sustainable for the long term and realizing that a mine is just a, a transient almost project or it's quite short term really in the large scale of things with regards to the land use for that patch of land. And so as the mining company, what is the, the opportunity that we have in our hands to deliver net benefit to that community, to that ecosystem once we close that, that particular asset? So post-closure, what does all of that look like? Um, and I think that's a case there where with the investors, for example, really now turning their attention to the true action and impact with regards to sustainability. There's a real move away from tick boxing and greenwashing. I think we've been there. We've done that and we've acknowledged that it, it doesn't necessarily generate a whole whole deal of value. Um, and now we're moving towards, OK, no, hang on a second. You say that you're great. Well, prove it. Um, and, and that's where a lot of our attention is at, at the moment is helping organizations to work out what should their sustainability framework or strategy be? And then how do they go about making that a reality through real action? And then finally, how do they monitor their progress? And that monitoring is really interesting because you can use really awesome technology like satellites and various different types of remote sensing to keep an eye on what's going on in different parts of the world without even having to set foot on the ground. So I think with regards to your question of what are some of the key areas of risks that we really see happening within the mining sector at the moment, those aspects of sustainability and the opportunity for mining to really shape the energy transition um, and this whole shift to green that we've got at the moment, I think that's, that is one of the biggest areas of opportunity that mining has had for a long time. Yeah, that's my impression sitting over here in the uh, podcaster chair, <laughs> ESG is definitely a front and center topic, particularly with the large miners, but also for the small miners. I mean, they can't escape it either. So yeah, social license, all of these things. And as you were mentioning, you know, mine closure sounds, it's actually like, it used to be kind of a boring thing that nobody really to talk about because that's when everything's done and the money has been made. But it seems like mine closure has become a very big deal. Am I right with that or is it not quite, it's getting there? Or what, just what's your take on mine closure these days? Is it a big deal? Or? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's certainly building. Um, and I think that the problem with a successful closure of a mine is that not many organizations have actually managed to do it yet. Um, we've got lots of examples of where we as an industry have done a really bad job um, or we just failed to close an asset. Um, and we've got very few examples of actually where we've begun to do it well. And, and that's partly because when you're thinking about post-closure, you're thinking a long way into the future. So it's not just, OK, great, you've now got your closure ticket. And so now you don't have any more liability with regards to that asset actually post-closure things a number of decades beyond that. So, for example, the, the manner in which you've perhaps closed your tailings dam, actually, is that robust? Does that engineering approach, does it really work? You know, thinking hundreds of years into the future. And what about the local community? You know, have you left something behind that is resilient? 
or have you left behind a, you know a town that is just going to start going backwards because you've removed the the heart of the the economic prowess perhaps that was in that particular locality so i think this is something here where the attention with regards to the responsibility perhaps that a mining company has together with the government and community in an area that is something that has been changing really quite rapidly over just even the last 10 years or so so it's a big area it's perhaps still too early to tell if we're beginning to get it right um, but we've certainly got the energy and the momentum is moving in the right direction okay and one final question before we move on to your course that you're doing for edgemine i'm just sort of curious of the governmental response and awareness of mining. Do you get the sense that the government, you know, like the mining industry has been taking strides to move forward with ESG and to be good corporate citizens. And they're also facing this, you know, competition with China and say battery metals. Do you feel like the government is keeping up with the private sector? And are they doing their part from your perspective? <laughs> so so I'm sitting here in, in London in the UK, and I think this is a case where we've actually been doing quite a lot of um, training over the last while with the British government to help them understand what is this thing called mining? Because, of course, we haven't really done a huge amount of mining in the UK since really the 1980s, when from a political perspective, um, it wasn't very pretty. What, of course, happened back then in terms of lots of union strikes, et cetera. Um, and so I think this is a case where governments around the world are perhaps beginning to realize that actually, in order for us to be able to hit all of the various energy and carbon targets that we've been setting ourselves, we have to be able to build lots of infrastructure using minerals and metals that have to be dug out of the ground because we certainly don't have enough in circulation in order to be able to build all those wind turbines from recycled aluminium, for example. And so we need to be able to mine, but we have to do it in a responsible way that not only um, attempts to support those parts of the world that might be outside of our borders, thinking about those big policy drivers um, that we see, for example, within the G7, um, but also then think, well, how do we make use of that trade and our ability to build refineries or ports, for example, um, that can then take those raw materials and process them into the batteries, et cetera, that we need? Now, of course, China um, started its mineral strategy decades ago. And so is miles ahead of the majority of other countries around the world. But that's not to say that other countries can't innovate and can't develop new forms of batteries that perhaps can make use of different types of raw materials or, or raw materials that have um, different properties, for example. And so I think that is something there which is really exciting to see, to say, okay, how do different nations and how do governments through policy um, support different types of innovation, as well as that full value chain of raw materials that's needed if we are going to achieve the Green Deal, the, the energy transition, etc., in a responsible manner, rather than just aiming at a carbon target, which, yeah, we can hit, but that could have um, terrible ramifications for things like um, having enough food to eat or poverty around the world. We've got to do all of this in balance. And I think that is really exciting to see the world's governments try to, to understand how can we do that 
whilst relying on raw materials that need to come from the ground. Right. And almost how do we extract those raw materials in a way that we're not going to cause a bunch of pollution? I mean, we had Jeffrey Christian on here last week and he was saying, you know, people think they're doing so well with their electric vehicles, but a lot of the materials that they're using are, you know, just as polluting as if they were driving a a gasoline powered car. Now, I mean, that's Jeffrey Christian's view. I think it's probably a very debatable point, but all to say it's uh, mining can't really be ignored, it seems to me from a policy perspective, you know? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think that this is something where when we begin to look at the full circular economy, so inclusive of the input that comes from mining, you can't have a pure, pure circle because it needs to be fed in terms of that circular economy. And um, if you look at the the true ESG or sustainability footprint of, say, an electric vehicle, that is very different um, depending on how you calculate it. And I think that whilst, yes, within the, the mining space, we can do a much better job in terms of, of how we extract the materials from the ground, how we process them, how we transport them, um, and then how we go into the recycling, but also in terms of the design of things like batteries in those electric vehicles. Currently, the vast majority of those lithium-based batteries are not being designed to be recycled. And so they're just being thrown away. Now, when we know the effort that we go to just to extract the lithium, let alone things like the cobalt, rare earth elements, etc., from the ground and process it so that it can go into something like a battery, um, that's almost criminal, in fact, of our lack of innovation to design those batteries so that they can be recycled and they can, the component parts can be repurposed. So I think the, the the solution with regards to perhaps some of these big challenges as a global population we're facing at the moment, it doesn't just lie in mining. It's a whole load of different stakeholders need to come together. Um, but that almost makes it more exciting because it means that we can see where's our role and, and what accountability do we have to everybody else actually to get our little bit of that puzzle right. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, just to see this evolve. It feels like a new decade. So tell us about your course that you're doing for Edgemine. Sounds very general. What is mining? So who is this for? That's <laughs> a good question. So, so yep, we've got this new course that has just been launched. Um, it is a, an on-demand, um, i.e. an e-learning course, so you can do it in your own time. It's called What is Mining? An Introduction to the Mining Value Chain. And what you have is a series of different modules that walk you through the key um, steps within mining. So going from exploration through to different types of the actual extraction of the material from the ground, be it open pits, underground, both in large scale mining and also into artisanal and small scale mining. And then a brief glimpse into the processing side. So how do we then extract the minerals and the metals from those rocks so that we can sell a useful product to people and industries further downstream of that. Um, so we're really looking at the, the full breadth and depth of that mining value chain, including some of the key trends, such as what sort of skill sets do we need in mining? Um, what's going on with regards to, say, climate change? How about different types of technology that we utilize within the mining space? And then, of course, all the way through into how do we actually finance it as well? So where does the money come from to finance these 
um, these extraction mechanisms, etc., to get the rocks out of the ground. Um, the course is um, it's full of lots of different videos and fact sheets, um, and so there are a lot of takes takeaways as well um, from the course. And just to come back to your original question, who is the course for? So this is for people who are either brand new to mining, and so they want to say, what on earth, what on earth is this thing? So it could be for, say, politicians, um, all the way through to recent graduates. But then also, say, for example, you have been spending your life working just in exploration, and you want a bit of a refresh to find out, well, actually, what happens downstream from your activity? So actually, what does that open pit look like? What about the processing plants? What actually goes on inside a furnace? Um, things like that. So this is your introductory view with regards to that big encompassing picture as to what is the mining industry all about? Interesting. And so how does that work at the end? Is there certification? Like, let's say I finish this uh, course. Is, is there any kind of certification? Is it, or is it sort of just, uh, you know, here's some information in case you didn't know? How does that work? So the, there is you do get uh, confirmation that you have completed the course. So you you get you get that certificate. Um, as well as, of course, you get um, access to material that you can take away. So those fact sheets, for example, so you can use them very much as your reference material. Um, you get access to the course um, for 90 days. So as well, you can dip in and out of it um, if you kind of want to come back and you want to say, well, hang on a second, I can't quite remember um, what that video said or, or what that expert perhaps told me. Because as well, it's not just me speaking to you. We've got a whole plethora of different experts. Um, so, for example, talking to us on the finance side, we've got somebody um, who is, is an investor and a board member in many different mining companies talking about those aspects all the way through to um, with regards to mine closure, artisanal mining, etc. We've got experts speaking to you about that as well. And tell me, is there anything for, say, like, let's say I'm watching one of these courses and can I ask questions at any point? Like, is there a resource there or is it, can you email people or is it simply, is it pretty straightforward? You check your course material. It's like, uh, you know, the great courses or something where it's not like you email the professor afterwards. So you can certainly reach out to us afterwards with any questions that you might have. And we're more than happy to um, be have a conversation or an email exchange with regards to those questions that you might have. Um, the course is designed um, primarily for you to be able to do this in your own time um, at your leisure, however. So it's not something where you have to hit a deadline to get any coursework in or anything like that. This is more you learning in a in a relaxed way. Or, of course, if you want that crash course, because maybe you've got, I don't know, an interview in the mining industry, or perhaps you've got to make a big policy decision with regards to something to do with the mining sector. And um, this will give you that four hour crash course in what is mining. So you can use it in either way. I love it. That was my next question, actually, is how long is this? So it's only four hours, which is yep. you know, it's a significant <laughs> amount of time, but it's kind of nice and compressed. It's something that if you are a policymaker, you actually can say, okay, I'll put a couple of evenings to this and I'll get this done. Yeah, exactly. And also as well, the way that it's laid out in its modular format um, means that you can actually pick and choose which aspects you want to go for. So say, for example, you only care about underground mining or that's all you want to know about. 
you can go and find that particular module that will give you your answers to those particular questions. So say you've only got 30 minutes and you need to very quickly get up to speed with regards to that. You could nip into the training course. There is a short five minute video on just the very high level terminology and aspects of underground mining, for example. And then as well, you'll be able to walk away with um, the, the key bits of knowledge that you may well need if you're going into to a meeting, for example. And the other thing as well to mention is that at the end of every module, there are such a couple of little questions. Again, nobody is going to fail you on anything. These are just knowledge-based questions or and all of the information should be in the material that you will have read or you will have watched during the preceding module. So there's a little bit of testing that goes on, but it again is all there to help you learn and help you to retain that knowledge rather than and penalize you if you can't quite remember what an answer might be. It all sounds very practical. Um, <laughs> okay, so I'm on the EdgeMind website. It looks like it is on the homepage there. Just on the bottom left, you will see a What is Mining new online course. Sarah, do you have anything else that you want to say about the course uh, before we wrap up? Um, just to say that um, this course is something that very much supports all of the other Edgemine material. So obviously, as we know, Edgemine have got a huge array of different courses that are out there. Um, and it's something here where if, for example, you are interested in, say, ESG or sustainability or perhaps something that is much more technical or much more financial, this course will give you that platform where you can go through it and you can say, OK, I now feel confident that I not only understand the main mining terminology, but also that the extent of that full mining value chain so that now when I go into a more advanced course, such as ESG in mining or something like that, I've got the foundations on which I can build that more detailed learning. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the program. It's Dr. Sarah Gordon, CEO and co-founder of Satarla, and she has just released a course with a team of other individuals called What is Mining on the edgemine.com website. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. There you have it, another episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Do not forget, we have the Global Mining Symposium taking place tomorrow and the day after. You can still register. Just go to events.northernminer.com. And we have some very special guests, including we have Peter Maroney, Clive Johnson, Jeffrey Christian, and Ryan Snyder, the first cobalt. He is the CFO there, so some very interesting people, so lots to look forward to. And with that, if you'd like to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, and feel free to share it with your friends, especially all you students out there. And until next week, take care.